Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. If you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Well, hello there. Uh, hi. Fancy talking to you again so soon. Yeah, look at us. Two weeks in a row coming out with new episodes. I know. It's been a busy, busy month for us so far. We recorded an episode with Blotto Beatles. We were part of their Beat ALS trivia Fun night. Yeah, that was amazing. Now we're recording again. We have another episode coming later in March that we're already getting ready for. So it's a, it's a really good month for us. It feels good to be productive. March is a good month for it since it's International Women's Month. A little foreshadowing for what's coming later. And lots of good stuff. Today's episode's really special and that was sort of um it's sort of a timely thing and you'll find out why. It's almost springtime here in California. It's freezing. It's about 60 degrees. So Oh shut up. Hate me all you want. 60 yeah. degrees. It's so cold. Eh. It's gonna be 60 degrees <laughs> here next week and I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna walk to work. It's gonna be incredible. You know, hate me if you must, I suppose. But I am getting in the mood for summer drinks, Erica. Yeah. <laughs> did you like the segue? Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> I recently found the one drink that I think I'm never going to make, which is Paul McCartney's margarita recipe. Why are you never going to make it? <laughs> Apparently, there were some private pilots and flight attendants who they were talking about the people that they fly with. And one of the people happens to be Paul McCartney. And apparently, he just loves to have this one drink when he flies. And it's a margarita. That does not compute for me. I would have never, ever thought that Paul's go-to was a margarita. Come to think of it, I think there is a photo of him drinking a margarita in the 70s. But I just, yeah, it's very funny. And it, you know, it brings him down to our level a little bit. Because who doesn't love a margarita? Especially when you're on a plane. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine he doesn't really remember any of his flights. Because here's the recipe for Paul McCartney's margarita. <laughs> Three shots white tequila. One shot Cointreau. One shot triple sec. Plus the juice from one lime and the juice from one orange. That's it. Five shots. Oh, my God. Paul, <laughs> oh, the fuck? I love that his whole thing of, like, how he remains young and stuff is like, oh, I do yoga and I eat, like, a really, like, vegetarian slash vegan diet. And then he has, like, a five-shot margarita. Like, maybe that's the secret. My grandfather lived till 95, and he was a musician, and until about the 80s, he was a big drinker. And we always used to say he lived so long because he pickled his organs. That's why Keith Richards is still with us. Exactly. So, so I guess long live Paul and his five-shot margarita. I don't think I'll be drinking with him anytime soon, though. <laughs> I totally misread the recipe when you tweeted it the other day because I thought it was like one shot white tequila, one shot Cointreau, one shot triple sec. And I was like, oh, that's pretty mild, you know? I mean, you and I have had stronger margaritas when you came to visit me in L.A., but now hearing that there's five shots, okay, Paul. And, and like, 
that's all there is. Like, it's just that plus like the juice from an orange and a, what, a lime. And two or three small ice cubes. That's it. So it's not like we're putting this in a pitcher and we're going to go to a bachelorette party and we're going to have some fun. This is his first drink on the plane. <laughs> I bet he never remembers his flights. Five shots. Maybe his goal is just to sleep through the flight. That would do it. That would put me to sleep, I think. I mean, that would put me to dead. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one margarita for the night. Like, that's the drink. That's it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I could do that and maybe some beer. Oh, my God. Totally off topic. Mm. Well, we're talking about alcohol. So, um, <laughs> and I know you and I privately were texting about Trader Joe's uh, cookie butter. Oh, my God. So good. They, Dude, okay. They have cookie butter beer what? now. No. Really? Yeah. So I got it because I just saw it and I was like, I have to try it. Like, you can't not try that. And at first I took a sip and it was like, mm, not that great. It was dry, but it was also, you could tell it was like the cookie butter flavor. Mm -hmm. But the more I drank it, the more I think it settled and you really got like the kickback of like the cinnamon when it finishes. And it was actually pretty good. I might get it again. That's so weird. I know. Isn't that the weirdest thing? I would have never thought to make cookie butter beer. What? <laughs> I think that has to be the next purchase the next time I can get into Trader Joe's. It's all right. You know, I mean, probably wouldn't drink it often, but I think like knowing Trader Joe's, they'll take it away anyway, shortly. Mm. So maybe I'll pick up one more bottle. I think I'd drink it more often than Paul's Margarita. Drink it together. You know, that's oh. what I'm saying. Oh, God. Vomit <laughs> City. <laughs> Oh, don't say that. Oh. Uh, I could talk about booze all night, I suppose. But uh, before we get into the episode, I did want to, again, just plug our giveaway, our monthly giveaway. It is live on our website because the, our bcthebeatles.com. Um, yeah. And as Erica declared it last episode, it is our magical mystery March box. Forget what we called it, really. Yeah, that's as close as I get to March Madness in sports. So it's, yeah. it's kind of the same thing, right? <laughs> Yes. So um, as opposed to, you know, telling you guys what we're offering this month, it's going to be just a grab bag of cool Beatles stuff that we've got laying around. And judging by our past, uh, you know, hauls, which come from the Cavern Club and Strawberry Field, a lot from Liverpool itself, you'll probably expect some of that, but it'll be fun. And uh, yeah, feel free to go check it out on our website and you'll find details of how to enter and how to get extra entries and all that good stuff. And we appreciate it. Yeah, it's really fun every month. Anyway, let's get into today's episode because we've got a lot of cool stuff to talk about. And I'm so excited because when we started the podcast, we made a short list of people that we wanted to have on. And this person was top of my list, not only because he's one of my very good friends, and uh, he's a wonderful guy, but also because he has the most insane Beatles story in the whole world, which we sort of allude to in our chat. He'll come back and talk about it. But a lot of people know him for another band. So today, we're so excited to introduce our guest, who is Andrew Sandoval. Yay! Um, yeah. Besides being the Grammy-nominated producer behind the reissues and releases from artists like, gosh, The Kinks, Van Morrison, the Zombies. I mean, so many things. So many artists and projects to name, too many to mention. Andrew is also a longtime concert producer responsible for bringing not only the Monkees, hint, hint, uh, both as a band and as solo artists to the stage, 
But also, I will never forget the wonderful British Invasion tour that he produced a few years ago, which included people like Chad and Jeremy, Billy J. Kramer, Mike Pender, The Searchers, Peter Asher. Mm. That was so good. It's a great lineup. Oh, my God. I know. I think about it all the time. Like, talk about epic. And speaking of the monkeys, Andrew Sandoval. I mean, what Mark Lewison's first volume is to the Beatles world, Andrew Sandoval is that to the entire monkeys career. I mean, he totally. is. He is the monkey scholar. This guy is, I mean, I'm, I'm so excited that, that we have him on. Yeah. And he has a new book out. Allison, do you want to tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, I would love to, Erica. His book, The Monkeys, The Day-by-Day Story, uh, chronicles a TV show turned real-life band from the birth of its members through the rise and fall of their superstardom. The book sort of came out 15 years ago, but now Andrew has redone the book. It received a major overhaul. From the ground up, heaps of new photos, lots of recently uncovered documents, including really, really juicy court depositions. It's good stuff. And it is set for release later this year, but it's really important if you want it to go to beatlandbooks.com and reserve your copy now by March 15th. We'll put the link in our episode description so you can just click there and go. But definitely check it out. And Andrew will tell you more about the book in our chat. So I guess without further ado, let's talk to Andrew. Welcome, Andrew, to Because the Beatles. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We're sitting here, but can you tell the listeners, where are we sitting? Like, what are we surrounded by here? It's amazing. We're sitting in my record room, which is not in my home. It's at a secondary secret location. Visualize in your mind thousands of records, thousands of 45s. That's kind of where we are. At least, you know, a good amount, more than I can even fathom. Andrew is an amazing collector. I'm always mystified by the stuff that I even glance around the room and see here. So I don't even know where to start because you have such a cool story of just being a Beatles fan before you get into the monkeys. And we should probably have you back to talk all about that, but how did you get into the Beatles? Well, I was watching television one day. <laughs> it's the same way I got into the monkeys. Um, I was really into music from as long as I can remember. I know everybody says that, but I was about four years old and I saw a TV show where they were doing bowling on TV. And it was a televised like daytime thing and I was watching with my father. And somehow, it would never happen today because you couldn't afford to pay the rights, but over the credits rolling, they played Good Day Sunshine. And I was like, wow, I love this song. And my dad said, hey, that's the Beatles. (laughs) And then he must have got my mom involved too because the next thing I know, they had this record cabinet and they opened it up and they pulled out all of their Beatles albums and they start playing, oh, oh, you got to hear this one and you got to hear this one and then you got to hear this one. And from that point on, I was just obsessed with the Beatles. That was about 1976. And then around 1977, I recall turning on the television. I lived in Los Angeles. I've grown up here, lived here all my life. And there was a, on Channel 11, I saw the monkeys. It was again during the day. I was awake. And (laughs) I I said, I really like the music of, of these guys. And, you know, I have all these Beatles records. I want the monkeys records. So, um... My parents went to try and find the Monkees records, but the Monkees records were not in print, which I've seen to that now. <laughs> I, I took care of that. that I yes. remedied that later in life. That was, you know, <laughs> it's like the, uh, you know, the starving kitten who never is hungry ever again because he makes sure he eats every morsel he ever gets. Exactly. 
Uh, what I didn't know was that there was a greatest hits record that was in print around that time, but my parents didn't know that, and we, we didn't know where to get that. So uh, one day my dad went to a secondhand record store, and he saw someone try and trade in the Monkees records, but they weren't worth anything. And I know people would say, oh, come on, you know, that's just a story. No, I've checked it with other people from the 1970s who worked at record stores, and they said, Yes, the Monkees records were virtually worthless because they were made in the millions. <laughs> yeah. And in the 1970s, they had no real following. And what we would do is if we had to pay for them, we would give you a nickel for the monocopies and a dime for the stereo ones. Now, my father encountered somebody trying to sell some of these Monkees records, and they wouldn't even give him a nickel or a dime for the albums. So they refused him. My father followed the guy outside and said, hey, I, I want to buy these records for my son. He bought me the records, and I grew up having the first five Monkees albums in my life. The Beatles have always had the most prominent place in my life, and sort of all the music I've discovered since then has been through the Beatles. But the Monkees kind of snuck up on me at the same time, and they were kind of in the background. And I didn't know about their later records or all their unreleased music until the 80s. I got into all that, and then I was hanging out at a record store called Rhino Records. I had gotten <laughs> over there because um, around this time, I went and... Um, I discovered bootleg records because I'd gone through all the Beatles records. I wanted to hear their other music. There had to be other music by these guys. And so um, a friend up the street said, yeah, we got this record. We bought it at this place called Apollo Electronics, which is uh, like a Radio Shack type place. And they had a whole wall of these bootleg records, the Beatles and all kinds of other people. They didn't have any monkeys bootleg records. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that place we went and my parents let me pick out a, one record. You know, and I had that for a while, but I wanted more. A couple years later, another neighbor said, hey, yeah, we went to a place in Westwood called Rhino Records, and they have the, the, the Beatles bootlegs there. Now, what I didn't know until much later was that the person who sold the bootlegs, who was the rack jobber to Apollo Electronics, was the founder of Rhino Records, Richard Foos. Yeah, I, <laughs> I sort of like followed his breadcrumbs all the way up to Westwood, and then I became a regular at the record store. And um, I started meeting some of the people who worked for the label, Gary Stewart, and then Bill Inglot. And I had a fanzine I started because I wanted to write about music. And eventually I said, hey, I want to write an article about the Monkees reissues. And I started attending some sessions and seeing how the uh, records were put together and the, hearing the multi-tracks and things like that. And eventually I got a job working on a Monkees record, which was Missing Links Volume 2. And this was in 1989, and it came out in January of 1990. I love this record. Growing up in Ohio, I became a Monkees fan before I was a Beatles fan. And those records were so precious to me because in Ohio, we didn't have cool record stores. Like, I got literally every Monkey CD from, like, Best Buy. I consider them sort of, like, canon. I know they came out later, but I guess, you know, that's product of my generation. I sort of got them piecemeal, not necessarily in order, but those were amazing. And, of course... Liner Notes by Andrew Sandoval and all of those. So thank you. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, the Liner Notes thing was really like the greatest gift from God. I, I, I think at the time when I, you know, Bill Inglot said, hey, I got you a job to write the Liner Notes. I thought it was the most amazing thing. And they paid me $150 for oh. that first job. And I just thought, oh, my God, I'm getting paid for my writing. This is incredible. Little did I know I would still be getting paid $150 for <laughs> Rhino years later. But anyway, and never another dime for any of these records. Right. But... It has been a wonderful thing. I mean, and the fact that I've been able to grow up and do all these different projects has been really nice. And then meet people like you, because 
When I started on my book in 1990, I was a teenager. And the reason why I wanted to do a book, there were plenty of books on the monkeys by that time. Uh, Eric Lefkowitz had a book out. Ed Riley and Maggie McManus had a book out with Bill Chadwick. There was the Glenn A. Baker book, which I thought was really interesting until I started reading Monkey Monthly from England and I realized how much of it was from there. <laughs> but Glenn A. Baker is still an amazing historian. He did the first serious Monkeys album, Monkey Mania. But the thing I want to know most about was how their records were put together because they had all these amazing musicians and producers and engineers, but the actual information was just like rumor. It wasn't fact. And so I got into a thing where I wanted to get the real facts out into the world. And that's what I've been doing for the last 30 years, not just taking someone else's work and, you know, attributing it to myself, but actually looking at their work and, and saying, how do they come up with that? And, and what's the um, primary source material? And mm -hmm. is there other primary source material? And luckily, all of the Monkeys authors have been really, really generous with me. Gary Strobel, who is still working on his Monkeys book, has also been an amazing resource. I've had this incredible journey, but now... It's almost at its close again. I got a second time in my lifetime to do this book, and it's all sort of thanks to the Beatles and my parents and uh, the monkeys. The monkeys get a little credit. Thank the Beatles for getting it started. Okay, so I've been a Monkeys fan since 97. That was like my gateway entrance into it because they were on Nick at Night. I was like, I'll date myself. I was like 11, and I got into them, and I, was in I loved them so much. At that point, I said to myself, okay, well, I cannot like both the Monkeys and the Beatles. So instead of just sort of like being ambivalent about the Beatles, I decided to hate them, to draw like devil horns on Paul McCartney and, and paint shop. Obviously, you know, around 2000, became a Beatles fan. The rest is history. But one thing that you guys might not know, and you know for sure, because I think I told you the first time I met you, I have a master's degree, if you can believe that, from NYU. They give them to anybody. And I did my thesis on the monkeys. I did my master's thesis on the monkeys and music marketing. I recently read it. It's totally outdated and awful. But I got to say, my primary source was your original book. So something that's been really precious to me, and again, in the spirit of full disclosure, you let me actually touch your book <laughs> that you're, you revamped. And I got to do a little bit of editing on it. And so I've read it, and it blew my mind about the monkeys and... It, like you've exposed things that I have totally rearranged my notion of the band. And I know I've like gone off and ranted to you about it, but it just really, I think about it all the time. Cause it's, you know, it's totally just rocked my concept of the monkeys, who they were, their story, how they came to be, like what happened to them. Don Kirshner, say no more. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I of course want to do this and have you involved too, is because there's no reason in the universe why Rhino should have opened their doors and let me in. <laughs> and I mean, you know, if, if you think of it in that sense, but they sense my enthusiasm. And so I've kind of carried that torch further when I can feel, you know, people are really sincere and interested in research and the story and writing and everything. It's like, I think that's really important to encourage with everybody. And uh, I encourage everyone who's listening to do your own research and find stuff out and write about it and pass it on to other people because... We are the people who are creating the story for the future. I mean, the monkeys itself would have died in 1970. It really died more or less in kind of 1968. But the fans kept it alive for decades and decades until now, including myself, because we're so fascinated by the story. And what I found this last year doing the story was that there was so much more to the story that I didn't know. I, I didn't go in saying, hey, I'm the monkeys 
expert. I've done all this stuff. Yeah, no, no, I didn't think that at all. I was like, what can I find out about this? And why did I think this 15 years ago when I wrote the original book? Like, what was my thought process? And can I do better? Can I make this a much better thing? And I feel like I didn't just make it better. I've tried to really reimagine uh, the story, much like some of the Beatles books, where we all thought we knew the basic story of the Beatles. And new research comes out and we're like, oh, I see the Beatles a little differently. I mean, the Beatles are such a pivotal thing in my mind. You know, it's my religion. It's my whole life journey is there. But the monkeys, the reason why I put so much time into them is not because I think that they're better than the Beatles or as good as the Beatles or as good as Jesus or anything. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's it's uh, it's because their their story was documented so heavily, much like the Beatles, because there's no reason why. Why would there be somebody making a tape recording of John Lennon and the Quarrymen at a church fete? And why, you know, why would there be pictures? And, you know, why is all this stuff out there that you can find? And it's the same thing with the monkeys. It's like it was an ephemeral group that was made for TV. But yet, almost everything they did was documented in teen magazines, and I found out in court documents and all sorts of other places where you wouldn't expect, and they were so heavily photographed. And the other weird thing about them is, and I've asked this of myself a lot lately, why did the Beatles like the monkeys so much? It just makes no sense. In America, the, the monkeys came on in September of 1966, but they weren't shown in England until the last day of 1966, December 31st, they debuted. A few weeks later, Mike and Mickey come to London to visit, and Davey follows them. And um, they're immediately invited into the Beatles' circle. They come to Beatles' recording sessions. Now, you don't see a lot of other musicians. Okay, you saw Donovan maybe once, or the Rolling Stones. You don't see, especially not some newcomers who've been on television for just the last few weeks. The Beatles seem to really like the monkeys, and I don't know why. <laughs> Especially, you know, early 67. We're not talking about, you know, the recording of, like, the All You Need Is Love televised event. We're talking about, like, those early, kind of early Sgt. Pepper, the demo period, things like that. And you're right. What Mickey, I think, came over in February, right, of 67. Yes. And met Paul and had this big meeting. But, I mean, to take it back even further, so people love to call the monkeys the prefab four, you know, whatever. Take a shot every time you hear that, guys, because it's everywhere and it's annoying. But the Beatles had a lot to do with their genesis, right? Oh, they have so much to do with it. I mean, Bob Rafelson says that he had this story that he was going to sell for many years. He tried to sell it, but it really wasn't until after A Hard Day's Night that he was able to sell this American Beatles for television concept, you know, a sort of a Hard Day's Night sitcom, as it were. Bob Rafelson created it with another producer, Bert Schneider. But if you get into my book, you also find out there were these other guys, Yarnell and Gordon, who brought them a story called Liverpool, USA. <laughs> and that ended up in a big lawsuit, too. So, yes, they created it. But also Paul Mazursky and Larry Tucker came up with the name The Monkees, but they didn't misspell it. There's all these things in the book where it's you think you know the history, but there's a lot more to it. One of the fascinating things I, I've, I asked all four monkeys about this when they were all alive different times. But I was always fascinated by the story that they went to see the Beatles at Dodger Stadium, the next to last ever Beatles concert. And they sat in the audience. All four of them loved the Beatles. But they sat in the audience with the producers of the television show. Their show wasn't on yet. And um, the producer said, we want to take you here to show you what your concerts are going to be like, which is sort of crazy. Like, yeah. really, you guys? But you know, three months later, that's what their concerts were like. like. I'll be damned. They were right. <laughs> yeah. 
And I think there's a great story, you know, and it's in your book and elsewhere, but I love the story of like Mike when he first gets to LA and he lives sort of near the Hollywood Bowl, right? And you can hear the Beatles when they right. play there. And it's so, it's interesting how those paths sort of intersect. And who would have thought, I'm sure he wouldn't have thought at that point that he'd be hanging out with John Lennon, you know, during the day in the life recordings. Yeah, there's a thing in, in the book where um, they're at a, a press conference in Australia and these fans break through to try and reach them and, and um, the monkeys stop the press conference to actually, instead of like, hey, get security, get these out of here, they want they go and embrace the fans and the, the press people are like, we've never seen anything like that. And Michael says, hey, it wasn't but a couple of years ago, we were standing at the airport doing the same thing. We're just fans ourselves. And I think the Beatles sensed that they were very unpretentious. But the, the wild thing about the monkeys is they went to this Beatles show and they said, you know, the Beatles aren't on stage long enough. They only go on stage for like 25 minutes. I think we should be on stage for like an hour. I mean, these guys hadn't even put out a record and they're like already. And, you know, they have this big field that they're playing on. They should have like a big screen behind them and they could show cool movies. Yeah. And you think like if the, Be the Beatles could have done that, but the Monkees pioneered that. They had a screen behind them starting in December 66. But it's, it's weird that they would look at the Beatles and not say, oh, we could be bigger than the Beatles, but more like, hey, what can we do that the, like the yeah. Beatles, but like, can we do some different things? And that's, that was kind of their career. And it's funny because I didn't actually have that visual in my head, you know, until I read your revamped book, you know, of what their concerts really looked like in the 60s. And they're very modern, you know, what they did and, and the types of things they would show like civil rights rallies behind them at concerts and things like that, very contemporaneous events, where the Beatles, it was obviously very bare bones. It was still sort of, it would have been comparable to maybe an Elvis show, you know, very low multimedia effects. But the Monkees, yeah, they had different solo spots in their shows. They featured each one. They had just a whole package, a whole act, if you will. Um, it was a bit of a review. As many bands in the 60s aspired to be the Beatles, they did sort of like take it a step further. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if they ever considered themselves on that level. I mean, right. Davy Jones says in some portions of the book that he he felt that they, they could have topped the Beatles had their third single come out sooner and been in competition with Penny Lane. It's a pretty interesting thing. But that aside, the Beatles relationship with them kind of went on and um, and went on through the years to the point where Davy attends a uh, recording session for Revolution Number no. One. And when Michael Nesmith shows up in London with the First National Band, Ringo's there to see them. And Peter plays banjo on Wonderwall, Georgia's soundtrack. The Beatles really respected the Monkees in a way I don't think the Beatles fans respected the Monkees because the Beatles fans yeah. felt like it's the whole like, oh, we can only like one thing. And to me, 60s I, I don't music. I know anything about that. <laughs> My 11-year-old self does not recognize that concept at all. <laughs> 60s music to me has always been like, well... The Beatles are not enough. I have everything of the Beatles. I need more like the Beatles or other things that branch off from the Beatles. So the thing for me, it's like the Beatles loved the monkeys as people and they respected them so much. Whereas, you know, you and I have talked about the music industry at large was like, these guys are fakes. Like they don't play their own instruments. They don't write their songs. They really have nothing of redeeming qualities. Their music's for kids, you know, and when it's not, you know, it was really, it was written by the top tier Brill building songwriters. Obviously, they wrote their own stuff later on, but the Beatles, did, did they sort of like see through all that and sort of cut through the the bullshit and got to the meat of it, which is that these guys are actually genuine guys. And they, some of them, you know, varied degrees of musicianship here, but they were sincere. 
Yeah, and as much as the monkeys were fans of the Beatles, they didn't overfan things. They they didn't embarrass themselves. You don't see a lot of pictures of them unless they're professionally taken for a specific photo opportunity that the Beatles set up because the monkeys knew their place. The monkeys knew not to overstep their boundaries if they're, you know, invited to a recording session that they were just like this is cool. I mean, Michael Nesmith was invited to to John and Cynthia's house for a weekend. I mean, right off yeah. the bat. They were sort of very much in the inner circle right away. And then they had this this party at the Speakeasy in 1967 when the Monkees came over to play. Their show was promoted by NEMS and um, this guy, Vic Lewis, who worked for Brian, he put together the shows and he continued to manage Davey into 1970. So they had a close relationship with the, the Beatles. And um, it's kind of fascinating to explore the ties between the two of them. I seem to remember that Brian even wanted to bring the monkeys over, you know, in his lifetime. And he was very interested in the monkeys and forever jealous. There's a picture of Mickey with Brian, which just for the bottom of my heart, so jealous that he got to meet Brian, went to his house and apparently, you know, had a uh, fun night with him and Paul. And But just to go back to when the monkeys sort of debut. So the Beatles sort of find out about the monkeys. Paul and Mickey are the first two to meet, correct? Right. Yes, but... But... You know, the most important night of the Beatles' career, probably other than them meeting Brian, is the night that they debuted on the Ed Sullivan Show in February of 1964. And who happens to be on the same television show but Davy Jones? So he sat, he stood on the side of the stage watching the Beatles. And so, I mean, he's actually on television, on the same show, on, on the Ed Sullivan Show with the Beatles. So, yeah. I mean, it's really freaky. Their their trajectory is really freaky that they're so closely uh, intertwined. It seems too, like, especially reading your book, that each monkey had sort of their counterpart beetle. Maybe not so much as like you would think like, okay, like George is quiet and Peter's quiet, but it's sort of like they had their like bonds, like George and Peter, obviously with Wonderwall and their sort and of the, musicianship. The mysticism and... Yeah, exactly. You know. And sort of transcending that. And then Mike and John... Kind are, of the leaders yeah, of, the, of, yeah, of, of, the, of the group. Certainly in that period of time. Yeah. And Paul and Mickey, I guess Davey and Ringo. I don't know. We got to put them together <laughs> somehow. <laughs> to Pizza Hut together. Uh, sure. Well, they did go to Pizza Hut together. Yes. And... Pizza Hut Ringo, it would be the Pizza search. Hut Ringo, yes. And you'll see the monkeys uh, in the 90s. And I was talking with a friend. I'm like, I think that was my first introduction to both the Beatles and the monkeys. I remember that because I was very into pizza. And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I have to try this goddamn pizza. And so is Ringo. Ringo I know. Is very into pizza and broccoli. So I can't. It, yeah. Well, we all know that based on his Twitter. So there's that. And there's a big tie-in between the two groups and their love of Nilsson, too, because the monkeys were one of the first artists ever to cover Nilsson. They had Cuddly Toy on their uh, fourth album, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited. And then Davey did Daddy's Song in Head as well. And Mickey and Davey also appeared in the Point musical in London in uh, the late 70s. And obviously, um, John Lennon and Harry Nilsson had a close relationship, and, and the, all the Beatles loved Nilsson. But uh, I've recently been going through a lot of Mickey stuff, and and John and Harry did a lot of recording at Mickey's house as well. Well, I mean, and they included, the Monkees included tribute to Harry on their latest album, Good Times, their latest studio album, uh, with the very first track, which was a Harry Nelson demo that Mickey applied um, vocals to. Actually, that was a recording that Michael Nesmith and Harry made together in a studio at RCA Studios in, in Hollywood. I don't think I knew that. It was done for a monkey session, and basically Harry had done a guide vocal, which was, you know, a scratch vocal that that one of the monkeys could, could learn the song and sing to. 
but they never got around to finishing it. And then when we were putting together Good Times, uh, that was one of the songs. Originally, Mickey uh, Dolans and myself had the idea that we would finish up a bunch of older tracks, and this was one of the things we found. And Mickey said, hey, you know, Harry was one of his closest friends. It would it brought tears to his eyes to think that he'd get to sing with Harry one last time. And so that's what happened as the opener for Good Times. And it's a lovely track. I mean, you know, you hear sort of Mickey interacting, quote unquote, with Harry, and it's really, really sweet. But I've got to bring up, you know, Mickey and Harry and John Lennon, Hollywood vampires. You know, in the 70s, they were a bunch of ragamuffins running around Hollywood, stirring up all kinds of trouble. Pretty much. Mickey was doing a lot of hang gliding and uh, a lot of partying in the 70s uh, when he wasn't doing celebrity tennis and uh, celebrity bowling with uh, Davey. And um, the Monkees got together with Boyce and Hart for a sort of reunion in the... They they talked with uh, Michael and Peter in in the 70s about getting together and they couldn't make that happen. But um, but that was sort of the 70s. And then... um, when Mickey and Davey went to England, Mickey stayed there and became a resident of the UK for many, many years until the Monkees came back to this phenomenal uh, success on MTV that was really, really unexpected and kind of right. never matched. Really strange that they all of a sudden they were on MTV every day. And that's, you know, that's what kind of reignited my fandom and a lot of the other people who follow the Monkees now and and their interest in the band. Yeah, totally. I mean, sometimes online, you can sort of gauge where people are by when they became bands. And like, are you talking about the 86 mm-hmm. renaissance on MTV? That was a big thing. And then the 97, which was like when I joined in the party, and that was sort of around the time of Justice too, uh, their album at that point, which I love. Don't even get me started <laughs> on how much I love the Latter Day Monkeys records. I always play devil's advocate for that kind of stuff. Love an underdog. Speaking of albums, you know, we got to go back to 67 because uh, the Monkees and the Beatles spent summer of 67, one and two on the charts. Of course, Sgt. Pepper came out. Headquarters, the Monkees album, where they all played their own instruments. They sort of were committed to, you know, making their own album their way. Uh, was number one, got knocked off uh, the top spot by Sgt. Pepper, but they spent the whole summer neck and neck on the top of the charts. Yeah, it's true. And uh, because the Monkees released so many albums um, that year, basically they released more of the Monkees, which is one of the biggest selling albums of the 1960s, Headquarters and then Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn and Jones, all three of the number one records. They did outsell the Beatles that year. It's uh, It's been disputed by Michael Nesmith, who sort of loves to sort of like stir things up and people are always like you're going to go against Nes and, and say that he's wrong i'm not going to say he's wrong i'm just going to say <laughs> if you follow the billboard cash box and record world charts and you add up the weeks and the days and the and the units that that one year because the beatles had out the amazing sgt pepper's lonely hearts club band and magical mystery tour as an album in the u.s and an ep in the rest of the world but they didn't have as many albums and singles chart topping as the monkeys did there it doesn't that's sales. It doesn't mean anything about what is creatively or artistically better. We're not talking that. It's just... What, sales don't reflect that? <laughs> You've heard it here first. Michael Nesmith is incorrect. So we talk about these stages of fandom, but one thing I find is really interesting about that period of when the Beatles sort of, they come out of 66 and they become way more experimental. They sort of kind of, you know, create the first really concept album in Sgt. Pepper. And I feel like a lot of their fans sort of, the younger fans especially maybe felt disconnected from them. They're sort of like, I don't know what this is. And then the monkeys come on the scene and it's sort of like, they sort of pick up those fans and claim them as their own, which I think is really interesting that they came around right at the right moment 
to really make this into a phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard for me not being um, a fan of of that period or not being alive in the 1960s to clearly, you know, I, it's it, I, I can clearly research it and understand that, but. I don't have the same baggage that the people from that era seem to. It's so weird. They're so angry about this whole thing with the monkeys. And I, I've met so many of them, and they've been so... Beatles fans? Or monkeys fans? Just, so no, people people from that era in general. It, it doesn't... I mean, they could be fans of Jerry and the Pacemakers, for all I know. I mean, which I, I'm a fan of Jerry and the Pacemakers. But it, it's... They just seem to get so angry about the monkeys, and I just don't understand why. The, the thing was, and, and I was listening to this interview with Phil Spector um, that he did in 1968 that you can find online, and he's saying the reason why the, the monkeys aren't respected is they didn't pay their dues. But if you look at my book, you realize, yeah, the monkeys didn't pay their dues together as a foursome, but they definitely paid their dues prior to being in the monkeys. I mean, they were struggling and scuffling around. Peter was in Greenwich Village playing at the basket houses. Davey was on Broadway, but then he was, you know, he was trying to like make a career as a, as a, as a singer, and that was sort of a middling uh, thing. Michael Nesmith was was doing all kinds of crazy stuff out here uh, in Los Angeles at the Troubadour, uh, hosting the open mic night basically. Uh, and Mickey, you know, was playing in covers bands, and he had been on TV. He'd already been a star, um, so it's really kind of unfair that people say. Hey, well, you know, it's like saying Crosby, Stills, Nash, they just were immediately successful. It's like, oh, well, they were on all these other groups. Yeah, well, that's why they're a supergroup. The Monkees were not a supergroup, but they did a lot with what was handed to them. It should have been, like, completely disposable, but it, it wasn't, and it isn't. I've heard you say, and in your book, uh, certain people are quoted as saying, you know, the Monkees could have happened with any four guys. You know, four guys auditioned, four guys got hired. You know, I always think that about the Beatles. I'm like, I don't think this could have happened with any four other guys. Like, it's insane, the kismet energy that came together in Liverpool to create the Beatles. It's insane to me when I read biographies or anything on the internet or even think about it too long. I'm like, how the hell did this happen? And I feel like it's the same way with the monkeys. You know, no other four guys had that sort of history or chemistry together, for better or for worse. Yeah, and that, that I totally agree with. Um, it's weird, you know, Davey, when he was alive, used to say in, in his later years, oh, you know, the Beatles were the first manufacturer group because, you know, Brian put them into suits and got them to, you know, got them to change what they were doing to, to market them properly and put them across to a huge audience. He was clever enough to see all of their potential and put them out there at just the right time and in just the right way. It's not exactly the same thing, but in Davy's mind, that's what the monkeys were. Because if you saw these four guys before the monkeys, it's like, they're going to be successful? Uh, no. <laughs> they are, they're kind of like just these four weird people. I don't know how you could have picked those four guys and put that combination together. I mean, that's the brilliance of Bob Ravelson and Bert Schneider. And that's, that's their similarity with Brian. That was the ultimate compliment you just paid to Rafelson Schneider, comparing them <laughs> to Brian Epstein. So, Andrew, tell us more about your book. I've sort of, you know, given away a couple of things for people to look out for. And I swear to God, guys, I am so excited about this book. I have, again, gotten to read it, gotten to, you know, join Andrew in the process of him sort of discovering things. And it is a real masterpiece. Well, it's a big deal in my life, for sure. It's hard to uh, look at my own work and sort of um, judge it in that sense. But while I was in lockdown through COVID all this time, I was thinking every time I could find something unique to put into the book, I thought, oh, this is really going to make people happy. Like, this is going to, like, 
this is going to blow their minds. And so that was the whole thing with this, this version of the book. The book is 732 pages long. It covers the years 1942 through 1970. Uh, so the birth of Peter Tork to the final day of 1970, in which the first national band play at Disneyland. And it, in between, it has all the monkeys' recording sessions, the breakdown of every person who played on the recording sessions from the actual contracts, not just some interviews or weird stuff that I came up with. Or, you know, if, if I don't know something, I, I tell you I don't know it. Um, also, all of their television uh, filming dates and the taping dates for their special and the making of the movie Head. And I interviewed most of the people involved with the genesis of the monkeys over the last 30 years, and a lot of unpublished interviews are in there, tons of unpublished photos, and you can find it all on my book site, beatlandbooks.com. And the book is open for reservation right now because I'm making the book, it's sort of a bespoke book. I'm making just enough to satisfy the demand of the people because I can't afford to store them. You see how many records I've got. I can't have like all these monkeys' phone books <laughs> sitting no around. room, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm making just enough to satisfy the people, and there's three different versions of the book. It is kind of a pricey book, I'll be quite honest with you, because it's very pricey to make, and it's getting pricier every day I add some new thing onto it. So there's a super deluxe one with an extra book of photos that comes in this cloth-covered case. There's one in a slip cover, and then there's a paperback one. But they all are really high quality. Um, I've got two friends who do uh, Beatles books, Kevin Ryan and Brian Key, who they did uh, Recording the Beatles, Kaleidoscope Eyes. They did another beautiful photo book, which I don't even have a copy of. I, I was so impressed with their work. The, their printer is doing my book. Um, so it's going to be of that sort of high quality Genesis publications, not at quite the high price of those books. I'm trying my best to get it to be as economical as possible, but I want to present it in the best way. I don't want to do a digital version of the book. It really devalues my 30 years of I've invested in it. So my apologies to everyone on that one. But if you love the monkeys or if you love the 1960s, I think this is an ultimate thing to have on your bookshelf. I mean, Andrew, I go so far as to say that you are the Mark Lewison of the monkeys. Is that fair? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I, I think we use similar techniques for research, and certainly he helped me a little bit on this book um, with a few of the questions I had that were lingering. Um, and he's told me that he has my original book and uh, that he's used it as research for for his upcoming books that we all hope to see one day. Oh so um, I, I know I've been a huge fan of his recording sessions book. That's what inspired my original version of this in 2005. And then Tune In certainly blew my mind and, and made me think there's got to be more to this story. If he can do it, I can do it. It's a phenomenal book. And I'm so excited for you all to see it. Andrew, thanks for coming on Because the Beatles. Well, it's my pleasure when I come back. Next time, we'll talk about my trip to Liverpool when I was a young young man and when I met yeah. Bob Wooler and all these other, oh, Alan Williams, all these things. I love the Beatles so much. I love what you do on your show. I love the enthusiasm and I love new Beatles fans and new Monkees fans. And what you said about, you know, we love our first gen fans, but I think there's something really special about coming later in the story. But yeah, I mean, I have to be honest, when I asked you at the beginning about your Beatles story, it's like, I just think about that Liverpool trip. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So you'll have to come back, Andrew. I'll be back. Fabulous. Well, that was so much fun. I'm so glad we finally got to have Andrew on. We'll have him back. As we said, we're going to make him come back and talk to us about Liverpool when he was a kid. But before we wrap up our time with him, just wanted to reiterate to you guys, if you want his book, and you do want the book, <laughs> if he hasn't convinced you, 
I have seen it. I've read it. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. Go to beatlandbooks.com. Reserve your book by March 15th. After that, you can order your book at a later date. As Andrew said, he's making them bespoke. He's just got to place the order for how many books. So the reservation amount will help determine that. And it's something to look forward to this year. I'm super excited. And that was a wonderful interview. And just can I mention the fact that you were in the same room with him? Oh, my gosh. I know. It just sounds so nice <laughs> that you're having a real conversation with a real person without a screen in between you. I know. Well, we were both wearing masks. Uh, we were both sharing a microphone. So if I sound, I feel like I sound like I have a little bit of a lisp in there, but it's all my mask guys. Like we were being very careful. So any sort of uh, muffling is is due to COVID safety, let's say. Well, good. Always good to be COVID safe. Congratulations on having face-to-face also. I know. It's, <laughs> it's We've only recorded what, a couple of times in person together. So, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a real, uh, you know, monumental moment when we have in-person stuff on the podcast. And it was really lovely to sit down with him in his record room. And um, also, I forgot to mention, if you want to see his record room, we talked about, there's a great video on his website, come to the sunshine.com, where he takes you through his record room. So you can see exactly where we're sitting, his record collection, all kinds of stuff. I've been to his record room many times, but I was poking around and looking at some of the monkey stuff he's got in there. There's always something different. Andrew's got so many cool things. So happy he finally made it to the podcast. But for now, let's wrap up talking about what we're obsessed with this week. Erica, how about you? What are you into? On the theme of very, very large books about 60s (laughs) rock that you have to pre-order in order to get on time. Paul McCartney is copying Andrew Sandoval, and he's publishing a 900-page lyrical autobiography. It's going to come out November 2nd. It's available for pre-order now. It's called The Lyrics, 1954 to Present. And it's not entirely clear what the format is. I know it's an alphabetical look-through at 154 songs. So the premise of the book is that Paul had a number of deep dive conversations into his life with Pulitzer Prize winning poet Paul Muldoon. And so it seems like it's almost like a scrapbook of song lyrics and original copies of, you know, notes and things that he he had during the times that he wrote these songs, plus these accounts of these in-depth conversations that he had in the present time looking back on the period of his life where these songs were written, and um, it turns out it is a 900-page, two-volume book. And most likely the closest thing that Paul McCartney's ever going to get to an autobiography. So I'm really excited about it. (laughs) I'm so excited about it. Okay, you're going to quash my buzz. Go ahead. No, I'm not going to be a buzzkill, I promise. I'm really excited about it, too. But Paul always does a thing. Where he's like, I'm going to give you the, you know, a story you've never heard before. And it's always a story we've heard before. <laughs> so it's like, like, what is he going to tell us in the book? He holds things very close to his chest and that's okay. But like, don't say that you're going to give us the lyrics and then, you know, give us sort of a story about your life or whatever alongside of it. And we probably already heard it, Paul. I mean, please let it be something new and different. All right, well, all I can tell you is what they're saying in the press releases. Paul Muldoon, the poet who sat with Paul 
McCartney and took down all of these memories that apparently are new. He says that he was struck again and again by what you might term Paul McCartney's scholarly disposition during the process. (laughs) He goes on to say he's one of the most buoyant, upbeat people I know, but his general demeanor shouldn't suggest that he's anything but a deep thinker. He looks long and hard into every aspect of his life, and I believe readers, old and new, will be struck by a book that will show that side of him. He's going to come out of this book as a major literary figure, said Muldoon. What? (laughs) I mean, of course, this is hyping the book. This is press release. But I'm really interested in a poet laureate saying this after speaking with Paul for so long. Paul Muldoon also says that we learn intimately about the man, the creative process, the working out of melodies, the moments of inspiration. I don't think it's going to be a tell-all autobiography. We're not going to hear the dirty details of the dirty weekend. You know what I mean? Like Uh, my mind went there, Erica, you know, I was just thinking like (laughs) dirty weekend because that's where my mind always goes. That was literally (laughs) the first thing I thought of when I saw this book was coming out, but I I know he's not going to, and I think he's going to do what he always does. And I mean, this is something that I feel like people argue about Paul McCartney all the time is that are his stories and his songs and his poetry, are they, obscuring who he is? Are they artifice? Or does he use that as a way to talk about himself and his life and his inner world? I feel like what he's going to tell us is about his process and about his feelings about it rather than concrete stories and memories. And so I'm going into it with that expectation. If we get the dirty weekend, I'll be super pleasantly surprised. But I don't think that's what we're getting. I mean, Peggy Lipton told us all about the Dirty Weekend. So, you know, go read her book. Her book has, like, (laughs) the juicy, the hot goss. Obviously, that's all we really are here for. Exactly. Well, as we were speaking, I just pre-ordered. So thank you. There we go. See, you should give Erica a kickback, Paul. She just (laughs) sold you a copy of your book to her fellow co-host. There we go. There we go. (laughs) I'm excited for November. It comes out November 2nd. We'll both have the books and we'll have to talk about it a lot. Oh my gosh, yes, totally. I'm so Yay. excited. Yay. And what are you obsessed with this week? Okay, so this is a little macabre, but I'm I'm kind of macabre. I'm kind of a, you know, morbid little fuck. I've been like that since I was a kid. So I was trolling eBay, as I do, pretty much every day, every couple of days for Brian Epstein stuff, mm-hmm. and came upon a copy of his memorial program from the service in October of 1967. So not the service at his home synagogue in Liverpool, but at the synagogue in London, which, you know, the Beatles attended and uh, a bevy of the rock stars and Brian's associates. I was very curious about it because I don't know much about Jewish funerals. So it had an order of service and in it, I was surprised at the number of Psalms. So I grew up Lutheran, um, you know, Christian, and psalms are a part of our worship services, mm-hmm. um, you know, anything, weddings, funerals, etc. But there are so many psalms in this memorial. There's Psalm 121, Psalm 23, which is the Lord is my shepherd psalm, Psalm 16. And then there's, you know, memorial prayer, etc. And then it finishes with, I believe, a few things in Hebrew. But I was just, I don't know why in my mind I was like, well, why would they say the Lord's my shepherd psalm at a Jewish funeral? So I uh, hit up a friend of mine who is Jewish and she was like, oh yeah, that's totally like textbook Jewish memorial service funeral type deal. She's like, but usually it's said in Hebrew. So it's, you know, the, instead of Lord, it's Adonai. 
And that's more kind of in line with the Jewish faith. And I was like, okay, well, this makes sense then that they would say it in English at this memorial service where, you know, the Beatles and like the other Goyim, you know, Mm -hmm. would be at this kind of plebeian memorial service from Ryan. I didn't know much about certainly his service. I'd never seen this memorial program come up on eBay, but it's really interesting. And it was cool to see that this week and sort of investigate it a little bit further and dig into it. Tell me a little bit more about the actual service. I know it was a public service and the Beatles and other artists in his stable were there. Yeah, of course. Probably the most well-known part of the service is that people, including the Beatles, were filmed going into it and coming out. Did you buy it? No, 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 no. So the price on this program is 715 pounds, which Whoa. is approximately 1,000 doll hairs. Wow. So no, I shan't be purchasing it. But, you know, I did save the image. So that's, you know, I got the information. Does the seller give you any idea about the provenance of this thing? No. I mean, they just sort of say, like, it's rare, like no shit. Um, you know, they talk yeah. play, talk about the place that happened, which is at the New London Synagogue, which is literally blocks from Abbey Road, the studio. And that's all they pretty much say, which we all know. I mean, I imagine it's real. I don't know why anybody would fake this particular item. (laughs) That would be a weird business to go into. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, so it's cool. It was cool to see it. I hadn't seen it. You know, there was an anthem played uh, from Mendelssohn, Rest in the Lord, which I don't know it, but knowing Mendelssohn, it must have been beautiful. And it has the rabbi's name here who conducted the service, Rabbi Dr. Louis Jacobs and Cantor George Rothschild. So that was that's cool to see, you know, just the details of it. Obviously, sad day, but I obviously love Brian so much. So the more I know, the happier I am. Yeah, seriously. I mean, it's one thing to know about the date and know that it happened. But you're seeing these people's names who were a big part of it, who are lost to history as far as the Beatles are concerned. I don't know, it makes you feel more connected to it in a way that you know the people's names, you know who honored him. And you're right. Like it's, I think in general, in the Beatles story, the people who are the most interesting are those who sort of get buried by their fame. Like Mm -hmm. no pun intended, I guess. Um, But (laughs) not necessarily Brian here, but yeah, like the rabbi or the cantor and people in attendance that weren't the Beatles. Those are the people who kind of get lost in the shuffle, but it's cool. Yeah, just seeing their names, seeing the order of the service and knowing that the Beatles were there is even cool. And so, yeah, it was it was really touching to see that. And I hope it goes to a good home. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess uh, that about does it for this episode of Because of the Beatles. Thank you so much for listening. As always, subscribe to us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now, and give us a rating review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We post photos and videos and more from this episode and beyond. And remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye.